We were flying out in a helicopter to meet with some local villagers, some of the chiefs, and I don't even remember the name of the village, but we had engine failure and had to make an emergency landing. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point where you're going to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt like the like She did say, you've changed. The soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Tamara Sloper-Harding is a veteran of the Royal Australian Navy, a peacekeeper and an advocate for Soibada, a village in Timor. Tamara spoke to Thomas Kay about her inspiring interactions on deployment, her negative experiences back home in uniform, peacekeeping and her passion for the people in one of our country's closest neighbours. I'm Thomas Kay in the home of Tamara Sloper-Harding. Tamara, welcome to Life on the Line. Nice to meet you and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. It's getting started. Do you have any sort of ties to the military in your family? Well, the military links go back quite a long way in our family. Um, my dad was in the Navy for a very long time, but even um, my mum's father, he was in the Navy as well. And I've got uncles in the Navy and in the Army, so we're pretty well tied to the military all the way through. And what was it like growing up with a father in the Navy? He was away a lot. As a family, we didn't have the support back then that families are given now when spouses or parents are away. So it was pretty tough on my mum, I think. But for us, it was a bit of an adventure moving every couple of years. The changing schools all the time wasn't so great, but the um, meeting new people and going to different places to live was pretty cool. Was it your father's career that inspired your interest in the military? In a way, I think it was such a big part of our lives. We grew up with Navy all around us, always waiting down at Garden Island for the ships to come in. We used to have our school excursions on board warships. It was pretty amazing as a kid to grow up with that all around. So it kind of imbued our lives. But I think it wasn't until I was a teenager that I actually considered it would be something I could do. There weren't very many women in the Navy when I was a young girl. So it wasn't something that was really in my sphere of interest when I was thinking in primary school, what do I want to do when I grow up? I mean, I always intended to be, I wanted to get into um, diplomatic service or something like that or journalism even, but then everything I was interested in, I seemed to be able to coordinate to do that in the military. So as a teenager, when the idea about scholarships to ADFA came up, that's when I first became interested in pursuing that sort of line of work. Was it always the Navy that held a a part of you? Like, so having your father and your grandfather in the Navy, did you ever think about the Army or Air Force or any of the others as well? No, I think it's life at sea that really hooked me. (laughs) Just that whole different type of camaraderie and everything amongst naval people and their friendships and things. Yeah, you get that in the Air Force and the Army as well, but it's a very, very different lifestyle, um, different way of pursuing the same goals as well. So it was always Navy, I think. 
And when you were growing up, did you have a big interest in history? Yes. Yeah, I was always very interested in history and the way different countries do things and the personalities of their leaders and what would affect the way a country developed and, you know, just sort of the intricacies of maybe the um, psychology of the politicians and that sort of thing. It was just, I found that really interesting. So was it your dad and granddad that thinking about all their career, you know, their time in the Navy, that you're like, that's it, there's that sudden switch and you're like, I'm going to do that. What was that moment like? No, it was more that um, I couldn't imagine living my life without having the Navy somewhere in there. I was at that stage, sort of later in high school, interested in psychology and human development and the way people manage each other in business and that sort of thing, but really interested in foreign affairs and interested in reaching out to help others. I guess some of it's that romantic notion that teenagers have wanting to save the world and do something that's really meaningful and make a difference. I did want to do all of that and pursue that type of career. So I knew I wanted to do something that was providing a service, doing a service for the greater good in a way. In my naivety, I didn't really understand what that would entail, but I'm pretty happy that in life, I seem to be able to make a difference, not just now with the career all finished, but with what I'm doing now and reaching out to others in Timor. Yeah, I hope that I'm fulfilling all my dreams. It feels like it. So tell us about you joining up. So 1987, was that right? Yeah, I was. Um, I went to the academy in 1987. I'd received a scholarship when I was in year 10 at school, but then when I finished year 12, I was still quite young. So they told me to wait another year before I came to ADFA. If that had happened these days, I probably would have had a gap year and gone travelling, but that didn't really occur to me in 1986. So I went to university for a year to fill in the time and then um, went to ADFA in 87 when it was still pretty new and there were a lot of difficulties going on, a lot of teething problems, which hopefully have been rectified now. But it was a pretty character-building experience, I should say. I bet. Tell us about your experience at the Academy. Well, it wasn't very pleasant and hence I only stayed for the one year before I um, transferred to the Naval College at Jarvis Bay. The incidents of 1987 have all been investigated in the last few years and a lot of us have even received apologies. It was um, nobody's fault really, it was just mismanagement of a new training institution but unfortunately it really impacted quite badly on a lot of people's lives, especially a lot of the young girls. As much as I hated it at the time, the experiences I've had there have really helped me in the rest of my life, helped me to help others. And I do think they set me on a path to reaching out and helping others in similar situations, even in Timor in 99. The skills and experiences I'd had under training at the Defence Academy, as awful as they were, really provided me a good emotional background to deal with some of the situations I found myself in with local women in East Timor. For a lot of people, that would have made people want to pack their bags and say, that's it, you know, I'm not going to put up with this anymore, but that didn't stop you from wanting to join the Navy, did it? Well, I didn't see what happened at the Defence Academy as a Navy issue at all. In fact, I didn't feel like I was in the Navy when I was there. It was a bit of a shock. I thought I was joining the Navy. And I spent my first few weeks going out bush with the Army, doing Army-type training, and I wasn't at all prepared for anything like that. Really didn't have a tri-service flavour back then in the early days. It was very much an Army institution. So it didn't put me off being in the Navy at all. And then I mean, it did impact me quite badly that year. I would do things like stay in my room and not go to classes because I was too afraid to leave um, where we lived and I wouldn't want to be seen by any of the other, like the older male cadets or anything like that. So it, it had a really negative impact on me. But I think what helped me was that in transferring to HMAS Creswell, 
the different type of environment and the other midshipmen had actually been briefed. I didn't find this out till sometime later, but they'd been briefed about my experiences and they really rallied around me like a group of brothers and went out of their way to make me feel comfortable. The leadership team were really amazing in catering to any issues that could have arisen because of my past experience. And it was quite a healing year for me, probably one of the most fun years of my life. Being down at Jarvis Bay, it was pretty special, but it did change my view on um, the military, gave it a bit of more positive swing after the experiences of the year before. And it also changed my view about men in general too. I'd left the academy thinking some pretty unpleasant thoughts about what men must be like in the real world. And being at Creswell and being cared for like a sister and a mate by other guys, that really did. I've got a lot to thank those guys for because they did change my life. I could have gone down a very different negative path, but having that year at Creswell really did set me back on the positive road ahead and um, enabled me to do what I do now. So what was your first ship that you served on? Probably training crews when I was at um, Creswell. We went on HMAS Stalwart uh, and did a Southeast Asia deployment. And that was um, because it was a training cruise for a midshipman. We did all kinds of duties on board the ship. So it wasn't just necessarily officer type tasks. So it was great. And um, down to painting. I don't think they actually hang off the sides of the ship anymore to do that. But we did in those days. It was great fun. Baking bread in the galley with the cooks in the middle of the night. That's of thing. We got to do everything to get a real understanding of how the ship ran. And I did feel pretty sorry for the, um, my army friends who were out at Madura Range, you know, just in the cold, where we're sort of going around Southeast Asia and getting to see some pretty exciting places and working hard. But the experience was just incredible for a 19-year-old. Following that, you were on HMS Tobruk? I had some more time training on Tobruk, but I wasn't a seaman officer at that stage. I had wanted to be a seaman officer, but my eyesight was pretty dismal, which I didn't realise until I tried to take a fix off a yacht once and um, then went and got an eye test. So I didn't spend as much time at sea as I thought I would. But yeah, I spent some time training on HMAS Tobruk. And it wasn't until years later when I moved into intelligence work that I did um, more time at sea as an intelligence officer. Was being an intelligence officer that sort of target of where you wanted to go towards? It was. I was really interested in that type of work and it fitted in with my um, research and history interests and politics and all that sort of stuff and and human nature as well. Um, Looking at the way people did things and why and what the results of that would be, I found that fascinating. So that was where I was aiming to go. And then tell me about your time as a midshipman. I believe there's a uh, story involving a sewing machine. Oh, yeah. That was one of the things um, at Adfra I spent such a hard time trying, such a long time too, trying to be one of the the guys. All the girls, we thought we had to be like the guys. But then when I went down to Creswell, I did take my sewing machine with me and spent a lot of time making board shorts for all the other midshipmen and and going um, on the Southeast Asian trip up top. We got to visit a lot of good fabric places at the market. So the guys would pick out the fabric they wanted me to make their board shorts out of. And I did spend a lot of time having to hem uniforms, but then they would do things for me like my shoes and stuff so it all worked out sort of we had a nice division of tasks that fitted in but yeah um, sewing machines not normally something that you travel around with as a naval officer I think things have changed I have heard that um, other people do things like that now but back when there were fewer women you certainly didn't and then so talk me through your navy career up until 1999 it was interesting because i couldn't as a young officer i couldn't transfer straight over to intelligence we didn't have an intelligence branch and so i had to do a lot of other duties and i was working in administration in personnel and i was um 
looking after families um, in our support area for a while. I was involved in organising funerals for deceased members, um, housing allocations for married members, all that type of thing. But it was a really good grounding for a young officer to get involved in all those different aspects of personnel management. Then I ended up in um, PR and media for a while. That was pretty different. And it was right at the time when um, the SWAN incident about HMS SWAN had just come out. And so the military were really trying to promote women as equals. And so I had a lot of time being interviewed by the media and everything just so they could have a female face out there. It was an experience and I didn't really enjoy that either, but they got me to do a bit of training in public speaking and television with some of the local media stations in Canberra and I had no idea at the time how much that would help me later when I was had to, had to stand up and do intelligence briefings. It made it much easier to do all of that, um, just having that bit of training early on. So it is interesting how everything kind of fits together. At Adfer, I really shied away from doing any public speaking because standing up in front of a group of sort of aggressive people was very difficult. And so then years later, ending up in a job where I was forced to have to stand up and talk really set me in good stead for then having to do briefings in front of senior officers, you know, in the middle of a real operation. Definitely learnt a lot. Mm -hmm. And during those years, I believe you served with one of our fellow podcasters, Angus Horden. Yes, yes. I'm pretty sure Angus and I were on the um, the mess committee at HMAS Cuttable at some time. I can remember organising a ship's ball or something with Angus at one stage when I was probably in my very early 20s. Small world. Mm. And um, when did you meet your now husband, Adrian? The first time I saw Adrian was actually at the Defence Academy in the gym and because he was a senior army cadet, I hid behind the universal machine so I didn't have to, to so he wouldn't see me. Um, And then um, years later I met him again at um, Duntroon Chapel at, at Mass on a Sunday night. I was volunteering then with the chaplains and assisting them with um, young female cadets who were in Duntroon Hospital who'd had bad experiences and I was providing a bit of peer support for girls um, who'd gone through similar things to what I'd gone through years and years before. So I got to know the chaplains very well and I didn't have, I don't drive, so I didn't have a car. So often they would arrange for Adrian, who was on staff at Duntroon, to um, help me out. And um, we saw each other at church every Sunday night, but we we're just friends, just friends for a really long time because both of us didn't think that people in defence should fraternise and um, we're pretty military back then and we're really good friends and I think that was part of what made it so special when we did end up together. One thing led to another. Mm, Well, it took almost 10 years, but yeah. And I believe timing wasn't quite on your side when it came to you first learning that you were being sent to Timor. No, and I don't know if we've really quite recovered from that timing. Um, I knew that things were starting to happen in Timor about mid 1999, I was up in Brisbane on an exercise, I think it was Crocodile at Inogra, and I met another officer who'd done a lot of research into it and one night on watch he said to me, just read this because this is what's going to happen. And he was correct. He predicted everything as it would happen later in the year. And after that exercise, I sort of came home and said to to Adrian and my dad and a couple of other people, something's going to happen and I hope I'm still here for the wedding. But it didn't seem that real and it wasn't till a couple of weeks before the wedding that things started to really happen but I got the phone call just in the middle of the reception. Like just before the speeches and the cake cutting, my mobile rang. It was the rest of the guys I worked with. They were already in Darwin and um, they were deploying the next day. So um, 
Yeah, that was a bit of a shock. I was more shocked at myself that I had my mobile on during the whole wedding and thank God it didn't go off in the middle of the mass part and the actual ceremony. <laughs> but yeah, it was funny because the photographer actually got a shot of that photo of me with the phone. I always hoped my mum couldn't read my lips when I was looking at the phone. But um, yeah, it was it was pretty bad timing. What were you doing when once you were deployed in Timor? I was on the intelligence staff there in the headquarters. I often did the early morning briefs. I worked overnight just doing analysis type work. So because I worked nights, it meant that I was supposed to sleep during the day, which was pretty well impossible when I was sleeping in a room with 40 other people and they're all walking around all day. So that's how I ended up volunteering to do other things during the daytime. And and although my job was really analysis and briefing, being female there proved to be really useful because I could go out and talk to the women. And I was involved in a lot of their, um, the women's groups with the nuns and the local village. We had craft groups. So the sewing came back into it again. Like I'd go and join in the local women's sewing circle. And um, it became a really useful way for me to be accepted in the community and get closer to the community. And, and that's sort of followed on into what I do now. Um, I became so close to a lot of the women in the community around Dili and up in Dare that um, I could never not go back. They were my friends and they felt like family after that and seeing what they'd all been through during the occupation and um, especially after the referendum. Yeah, the violence and everything that those women had, had lived through, I just felt this real connection with them and... So even though that wasn't actually my prescribed job while I was there, it ended up being something that I just did as a side thing and I could manage to rally around plenty of other volunteers if they had time off between shifts to go out to the orphanages with me and and do different jobs. And it was really good for some of the guys to get out of the um, main base too and see what it's like in the districts and really get hands-on helping people. I guess you developed a knack for breaking down barriers. Yeah, even with the language (laughs) problems, it's still, I think um, we just connected and it it kind of happened like that and it's had a lasting effect. And what was your initial impression when you first touched the ground in Timor? That was actually a real shock. As a naval officer, I hadn't been trained in using a styre at all at that stage. I was the only naval officer in the group in Darwin. Um, they were all army and I didn't even know how to put out the army stretcher in the hall. To, it was, I mean, all basic stuff like that. It's very different being on a ship. And so um, we were given our weapons and then we flew over to Dili and when we arrived, it was pretty horrendous. Everything was still on fire and there was lots of pretty bad things going on. And as we landed, they told us that we had to sort of crawl to where the airport, well, what was left of the airport facilities were and um it was kind of really surreal and I just remember at one stage the sunglasses Adrian had just bought me as we were going on our honeymoon blew off and were rolling across the tarmac and this soldier goes oh I'll grab them for you ma'am and I'm like no don't worry don't worry like that's not really important um and it was just it felt like we weren't really there and then driving through Dili we, we hitched a ride in a UN vehicle to get to the headquarters and just the destruction and the stench and everything It was so unbelievable and looking at people walking around like dazed and wounded and there's nothing that can really describe it, but it's more the smell that gets to me now, like the smell of burning and rotting 
vegetation and things like that. But it was it was pretty horrific and a real shock. But it didn't feel real at all. It was like um, dropping into a movie set or something. It was pretty terrible. And to see people I'd seen only a week before, um, a lot of our wedding guests were there. <laughs> and so that felt really weird because I'd only just seen them. And then I was seeing them walking around in body armour. It was just very odd. And they looked at me and went, what on earth are you doing here? You're meant to be on your honeymoon. <laughs> it was just the whole thing was really surreal. What was it like with your experiences there, such as interacting with the locals? I found getting to know the locals was probably the most rewarding thing about the whole experience. I spent the first couple of weeks there wanting to not be there, thinking, why am I here? You know, what am I doing here? But after I got over that sort of initial stage and got got to know the locals and really understand what had happened, everything changed and... um, There was even a stage where I didn't want to come back to Australia. After a while, I thought, no, I just want to stay here because nothing in Australia seemed to mean much anymore. When you saw what these people had gone through and what life was like there, I was quite prepared just to stay. And if I hadn't just got married, I probably would have just ended up getting out of the Navy and staying in Timor. But my boss sat me down and had a big talk about how you have to go back and face real life and, you know, we all have to go back at some stage. But I become so attached to a lot of the locals and seeing the children everywhere as well. And I was visiting all the orphanages and they were trying to find kids' parents and it just kind of really got to me and I knew that nothing would be the same after that. For the locals, would it be a rarity for them to see someone like yourself as a military person? Yeah, that, that did cause a bit of amusement to them at some times, yes. And also to the foreign journalists that were around. But there were quite a lot of women over there when I was there, so I I couldn't see that it was such an interest. But, yeah, we did stand out a little bit. When looking back on Timor, are there any memories that jump to the front of mind, like whether they're funny or serious? There's a lot of memories, but there's some that really stand out. Um, And it's, it's even hard. Like There's a lot of funny stories, but there's some that are really emotionally hard to think about too. Little things like even as a very junior officer, providing the briefs to the senior officers and recommendations to think of what the impact of what you're suggesting could have on people. Like there was one incident where um, I got to know some of the aid workers and we had a bit of a problem with aid workers just going out to the districts when it was dangerous and even though we told them not to, they would continue to do that. I understand that a bit more now, but back then it was really frustrating. And one night an aid worker contacted me wanting the troops to come out and help them, but we couldn't do that. We couldn't organise that because of other situations that were going on. And I, I heard afterwards that um, one of the children that she was trying to get us to help passed away. And so that, to me, I felt really responsible for not pushing harder, for not really making it happen and getting the help out there. The thought that a child died because we didn't provide the support that someone was asking for, that's been really quite hard to think about. And maybe that's why I want to help everyone now. I, I don't know. There were things like that, but there were lots of other funny things, just living with that many people from all over different countries in close quarters with very little sort of comfortable things to make life easier. I mean, the first few weeks just on ration packs and everything. And we were in the headquarters, so it was nothing compared to what the guys out at the border were going through. Those guys really did it tough and there's just no comparison. They'd be out there without water for weeks and it, it was really terrible for them and we'd, we'd be sort of living in luxury compared to them, you know. We even made our own vegetable garden and a deck out of old planks of wood and but still compared to how you are at home, it was pretty different, and especially you couldn't compare that life to a life at, on 
a ship. We have running water and a nice uh, cabin to go to. So sharing a room, big old sort of room with a whole lot of guys and everything that goes along with that was pretty interesting. And it came back to that, that whole me doing craft and making things. They'd find broken stuff around the place and say, can you fix this? Can you make this into anything? And they... Um, Gave me, we used to collect the Freds out of the ration packs and um, they're the devices you use for, it's a can opener and you can eat with it as well, it's like a spoon. And um, they're called Freds for a reason which most defence people probably already know about but I won't go into it now. Um, but they'd collect them, they asked me to make wind chimes so we had all these wind chimes hanging up. Like we'd, I don't know, maybe it was a Navy thing but the Navy guys I lived with wanted to make where we lived a little bit nicer. So they'd do things like put up shelves and find old furniture and we'd do it up and plant our little garden. I think I even had tins of paint sent over to me from Australia to try and cover up the bloodstains on the walls and things like that. So we did try and make our living experience a little bit more comfortable. So I'd make things out of whatever we found and and I was still doing, I carried around um, craft always in my pockets because there was a lot of times when you'd just be stuck waiting somewhere, whether it's waiting for a meeting or we'd drive to meet some Timorese people and time was always very flexible. So we'd sit for a couple of hours waiting for the meeting to start and I just couldn't sit there. So I had things to do like crochet or embroidery or something that I just pull out of my pocket, which was really good because then the women would come and talk to me. There was one time I was doing a particular type of embroidery and I needed to trace the design onto a piece of fabric. And you usually hold it up like on a window or something and there were no windows because everything was smashed. The only pieces of glass were on the um, UN four-wheel drives and they were really filthy. But then I happened to be in General Cosgrove's office hanging up a map one afternoon ready for the briefing and I noticed that there was a window really high up above his desk. So I had to stand on his desk to put the map up anyway. So while I was standing up there, I thought, oh, I'll just quickly trace this design onto my fabric and yeah you can probably imagine what happened after that I was caught standing on his desk and whole of senior officer said what on earth are you doing up there but they kind of got used to me after a while that's good to know and then what came after Timor for you it was strange to come back and it was strange to come back into um, maritime headquarters where everything had just been going along as normal for the time we'd been gone that was really weird just to be in Timor one week and then back at the desk the next week so, yeah, it wasn't really easy. We all kind of came back in sort of one at a time and would link up again in the headquarters and sort of say this feels not where we're meant to be anymore. But I think after that I was doing a RIMPAC as still part of um, DJFHQ Maritime, so Deployable Joint Force Headquarters Maritime. We were going over to Hawaii and I joined um, USS Coronado for a while um, as one of the intelligence staff there. And... American ships are very different to ours, so that was a bit of a shock too. But it just, it was so soon after coming back from Timor and we were working with people who hadn't done their jobs in a real situation before. So it was a little bit frustrating. I mean, the experience of um, sailing out of Hawaii and um, working with that many other foreign navies, that was pretty cool. And I was doing the briefings for the Admiral there as well. And we got away with some pretty funny stuff because they just like to hear Australians talk because our accents were entertaining. So... I ended up having to do the briefing all the time. Um, it was fun, but it was just such a shock after being in Timor and I didn't really want to be there. And then what was your next deployment? I wouldn't call it a deployment, but after that, I was working in an area that specialised in Southwest Pacific 
interests. And so I had to go over to Bougainville where the peace monitoring group was to get an idea about what was happening over there. And I mean, I'm pretty lucky to have got to do things like this. It was pretty exciting and certainly not very navy. So I went over there for a while and I met with lots of the local villagers and people of interest to get to know. And um, that helped set me up for my next job so I could get a good all-round view of what was happening in that that area of the world because um, that hadn't really been my area of interest before. So it was it was pretty exciting. You picked up a few uh, significant memories while there oh, as well, yes, didn't you? Yes, Um Lots of people said they'd never fly with me again after that. We were flying out in a helicopter to meet with some local villagers, some of the chiefs, and I don't even remember the name of the village, but we had engine failure and had to make an emergency landing. Because the guys had been sort of teasing me as we were getting in, like the loadmaster was carrying on and sort of joking. When he said crash positions, I actually thought he was joking still. And he goes, no, this is real. There was an army nurse with me, I remember that, and she was sort of just leaning out taking photos still because it just seemed like, no, this can't be happening. And so it made this emergency landing in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, lucky it didn't seem real. But all I could think of at the time was, oh, no, I've left my, my room in a mess at home. Adrian will see how messy my drawers are. I haven't folded my socks properly, you know, <laughs> All I could think about was things like that um, because although we'd been married quite a while at that stage, we hadn't really lived together very much because we'd both been in different places. So I was thinking, oh, no, if I die, he'll see how messy my drawers are. Oh, no. But then we ended up sitting there for hours and um, I carried around some of those Robert Tim's coffee bags in my pockets because I liked to have a real coffee and we had condensed milk. So we lit a fire and had coffee and the guys were going, oh, do you really carry this stuff around all the time? I said, yeah, well, you never know when you'll need a real coffee. <laughs> and it was pretty boring waiting for someone else to come and to get us. But I had my craft to do, so I was crocheting and filling in a bit of time, just chatting to people, and no one was hurt or anything, so it was pretty it was pretty relaxed once we'd got to the ground. And then some villagers came out of the middle of nowhere carrying a whole lot of stuff for us to buy. There was nowhere nearby, so they must have been walking for quite a while to get to us. So I did a bit of shopping, um, bought some baskets to keep the crochet in, and then one guy was selling um, sarongs with New South Wales rugby on them. So I thought, oh, I'll buy one of those for my dad. <laughs> And eventually we were going back in the rescue helicopter, but um, the guys were going, you're just unbelievable. Like we're in the middle of nowhere and you managed to have coffee, do craft and go shopping, but we're never flying with you again. Because that was probably the third time that it happened to me. Um, not in that same um, trip, but yeah, I just seemed to have bad luck in moving vehicles. So um, yeah. Have you set foot in a helicopter since then? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a few times since then. And it is fun. And there's not as much to crash into as if you're driving on the road, but yeah. With you in the Navy, husband in the Army, that didn't really leave much time for you as a family, did it? No, it was a while before we could actually sort of all settle down and be in the one place. And when we, we planned to have the kids, and because we were both a lot older as new parents, and I had this idea that I wanted to get back to work quite quickly, and we knew we wanted to have a large family, so... I had enough leave stored up that I thought, okay, I'll just have a few of the kids while I'm on the first lot of maternity leave and do it all together. So we had um, four kids in four and a half years, which was pretty insane now when I think about it. But we never seemed to get our postings in the same cities. And so initially I thought I'll, I'll have the next baby take maternity leave and go up to prison with Adrian. That was a bit of a shock for me living in a married patch at Nogra with the rest of the army families when I, I felt like I'd only just finished, well, I was still in the Navy, but I'd only just finished working. And to go from being in maritime headquarters to being a stay-at-home mum 
with little kids was a really big shock. So eventually we were coming back to Sydney and I was planning to go back to um, Navy part-time and my parents were going to help out with the kids. But then we ended up in Canberra and it was all just too hard. I still wanted career progression, but I couldn't have it with like working part-time and with the kids. And I also I'd waited a long time to have a family, so I wanted to be there for them. So we ended up, both of us, transferring to the reserves and moving to Sydney, which has been quite an adjustment to civilian life, particularly for Adrian. It's really hard and I know he would have preferred to have stayed in the army full time. But I kept looking back to what it was like for me with my dad away as a kid and the constant moving and and it seemed like the best thing to do for our children to settle in one place so they could go to school, just one primary school and then one high school, not like eight different schools. Um, So we made that decision and Adrian's still doing a lot of reserve time and really missing the Army. And I miss the Navy too, but... I'm so busy now with the local community and um, I mean, the plan was I'd go back once the kids were at school, I'd go back part-time as a reservist, but that was before the charity with Timor started and before I got involved in all these other things in the local community. During the time that um, you first decided, okay, time to have the children, did um, Adrian see any overseas deployments? Uh, he actually deployed earlier than that. He was with the UN after the first Gulf War, so he was explosive ordnance disposal and sort of specialised in chemical and biological weapons, I think. He could probably tell you a bit more about that. So he was over in Iraq. I know he was with a couple of Navy people that I knew, like divers, and from what he's told me, it sounded pretty pretty awful. But he doesn't really talk about it very much. Then looking back on your time as in the military today, you know, going overseas, multiple helicopter crashes, you faced a tough time when starting out at one of our prime military institutions. Was this tough on you looking back on over everything? Yeah, I'd say it wasn't easy. There were a lot of challenges for women in particularly in the late 80s, early 90s. But in a way, having to deal with all of those things that occurred and and they were reoccurring throughout my career, like just constant things you had to sort of be prepared to stand up for yourself. I think that has set me up in good stead for real life though because there's not much more that could happen to me. There's not much to be afraid of anymore because it's happened So and you've lived through it. So I still find it strange now that I'm involved with um, the RSL and that's still very much a male-dominated institution and sometimes I feel like I'm back in the 1980s but having been through all of that already there's not much more that can happen now. It is true it makes you stronger and it also puts things into perspective like particularly seeing the experience of women in Timor it's put everything I've gone through into perspective and it's really not that bad. Um, We live in an amazing country where we have running water and flushing toilets and no one's coming at us with a machete or a gun so life's pretty good here. Today you're in the Naval Reserve, you're a wife, you're a mother, but you're also an advocate for a particular village in Timor today. What can you tell us about it? Well, that's kind of taken over our lives, our whole family. We've got a friendship relationship with a village called Soibada in the middle of Timor in Manitoutu. Some of our Interfet troops did serve there, but I didn't, which is actually a really nice thing because I've got no memories of 99 in the village. But this whole link came about by accident. I was doing an Anzac Day talk at the local primary school here when my oldest son started school and the children were asking normal sorts of questions that kids ask about war and I was trying to steer the conversation back to peacekeeping and defence is really about making sure everyone's safe and and so one of them said to me, so where did you do that? And I said, oh, East Timor and the kids hadn't heard about 
They didn't even know where it was. So we then got out a map and started talking about, here's East Timor, look how close it is to Australia. And the teachers said, would you come back and talk about just Timor next week? So then I went back in to tell more kids about Australia's relationship with East Timor and how it went back to World War II when um, the Japanese were invading and our soldiers were up in Timor and the Timorese children, young boys, protected our soldiers. And, and you could just see the spark of interest in these primary school kids' eyes. And it was quite amazing amazing to watch. So afterwards, they were saying, we want to help these kids in East Timor. And um, it was it was so nice to see little Australian kids who live on the northern beaches who have everything wanting to help other kids. So the teachers said, oh, maybe we could write letters, we could send something. So I contacted a few of my um, Timorese friends and said, oh, how could we do this? And the idea of linking up that primary school with a primary school in Timor came up. And I knew that Kirsty Sword Guzmao had a friendship school arrangement going at that time. So I got in touch with her. And um, then um, Ambassador Abel Guterres, he was the consul general back then. We got him to come out to the school and talk to the kids. And then Kirsty came to school and just this hunger for more knowledge about Timor started to happen amongst the children. And so it was very much child-driven, the whole project. And we officially made them, they, they got linked with a primary school. And I just remember Abel Guterres walking down to the local park with me saying, oh, you could do much more than just linking up some schools. Um, you could like link up the whole area. And I said, I've just had my fourth baby. I'm really tired and really, really busy. I don't have time for any of this. But then somehow 10 minutes later, I'd said yes. Never imagining that it would come to this commitment that's gone on for like nearly 10 years and we'll keep going. We then decided, Abel and I went and spoke to the local council and they really wanted to come on board and it moved from just two schools to a whole community linking up with the community and the Timorese government decided that Soibada was an area that could really benefit with some help. When I said why, Abel just laughed and said, when you go there, you'll see why. And um the first time we went there, I think it took 17 hours to drive there from Dili because we went around the whole island. It's actually really about a six-hour drive, four to six hours or maybe eight hours, depending on the weather. But it's pretty remote and it turned out that nobody else wanted to link with Sobata because it's too hard to get to. So then the local council linked up and then different church groups and community groups and other schools all wanted to be involved. So it grew so big that we had to become a registered charity. And so that's where we are now, just trying to raise funds to enable the locals in the community over there to build their own schools and build their own um, all their own services. They have the they have the skills and the ability. They just don't have the money at the moment. So um, we're providing that and employing people. So giving jobs back into that community and everything we do there is um, guidelines are set by the local community. So we don't go in there as Australians saying this looks terrible. Let us fix it up. We have to sort of step back and say to the locals, what would you like us to help you with? And they've been very specific. They've got doctors over there now and they've asked us to do things like provide new mother and baby packs to encourage the mums to come and give birth at the clinic instead of giving birth at home because there were so many deaths. So that's something that we do. Um, they wanted a guest house and a training centre to try and encourage tourism so the industry will grow. And so we've been doing that. And the latest thing that they've asked for, which I was just filling out a grant application earlier today for, is um, a training like a technological college and training centre for trades. And so they can learn hospitality management and IT. And, and rather than all the kids wanting to grow up and go to university which is how they are at the moment, they don't have people with trade skills. So they want to encourage some of the, the young people to stay in the villages, get an education there and keep working in the villages, not all just go off to Dili, to university. So, yeah, we've got lots of things happening. And I, I, I just got back about three weeks ago from the last trip. 
How many times have you been back there? Oh, we were trying to work this out the other day. I think counting the 99 trip, it's probably about, I don't know, it might be 20 times or more. I'm not sure. I'd have to sit down. I go twice a year and take different volunteers from here. And everyone, they're all self-funded volunteers. So they're people that really, really want to go and make a difference. And I just found it interesting to meet just people, civilians who've had nothing to do with Timor, really opening their hearts and wanting to go and help our neighbours. And it's quite awe-inspiring, really. Some of the people that have been with me three or four or more times, and it's expensive to go there. And especially local businessmen here on the northern beaches, they're not just paying to go, but they're giving up their income in their local business here for that time. So it's pretty special that what came from my experience in 1999 is touching so many different people in two different communities now. So there's a lot of people here in Sydney getting a lot of benefit from it because we we really want to do something for other people and just having that avenue opened up just locally that we can go over to a village that's so different and so connected to us now. It's really special. Since starting the charity... Also, since going back and forth between, have you seen much change? There's been a lot of change. Actually, the first time I went back in 2009, I was really shocked that it still looked the same. Not much had changed. Driving through Dilly, there were still the same burnt out shells of buildings everywhere. And I was quite horrified that nothing had happened in all that time. We're really behind the scenes. An awful lot was happening. And there was a reluctance to knock down some of those derelict buildings because there's so much memory and everything there too. So after that, probably it was probably around 2012, I started to really see a lot of change and a lot of development happening. And now it's phenomenal. Every time you go back, there's new roads and new buildings and infrastructure just developing everywhere. And the feeling amongst the people is different too. There's such motivation to get out and do something. It's it's really, really amazing and, and positive. But I was shocked when I first went back because it took a while to get going. But when you think they, they haven't had independence for very long, they're such a new country and there's so much, they've got to start from scratch. And they're starting really on the back foot because so much was destroyed in 1999. So there's an amazing video of Soibata from the 1950s. And when you see the kids in the school there, they're turning on taps and water is coming out. Like there's not running water and taps in people's homes or anything now there. But back in the 50s, there was. So everything was destroyed. They've got a really long way to go just to get back to where they were before Indonesia invaded. And I think that for me is the key, like that upsets me the most, that Australia knew all of this was happening in 1975. And I imagine what Timor would be like now if they'd been left to their to just progress naturally and not have everything destroyed like that. They wouldn't be far off us in development, I don't think. But that's just my lay opinion. But looking at what it was like and the damage that's been done and just the destruction even of the forests and so the crops and the animals, everything, it's really horrific, not just what happened to the people but what happened to the land and what happened to their historic buildings even. Um, Soibata's got some beautiful historic buildings from the Portuguese times and um, you can still see bullet holes and things um, and the damage that was done in in the Indonesian times. I saw one of your TEDx talks and initially when you think of a charity and going to help make change, you'd think construction workers, but you Mm. took a hairdresser along with you. Yeah, that was the biggest eye-opener for me and changing my perception on how we should be helping Um, because when we did start the charity and we'd go over there and see so much was damaged, like the toilet blocks were all wrecked and 
just the physical damage to the buildings, I just imagined we'd need to take builders and construction people and tradesmen. And yes, we do. But the biggest impact has actually been from taking one of my friends who owns a hair salon here in Avalon. And he's been over countless times now. And originally it came about because I was sitting, I don't like to go to the hairdresser very often because you have to sit still for too long. So I had my laptop open and I was looking at four-wheel drives, trying to work out what sort of car to book for the next trip. And Ian said to me, what are you doing? Like, And I said, oh, help me choose. I don't know anything about cars. And then he, he sort of said, what, why are you doing this? And I said, oh, I'm going to this place. And I showed him a video of the road to get there and he said something like um oh, I'm pretty handy I could probably help you out I'm a bit of a handyman and I just looked at him and said you could teach this you could teach skills from your hairdressing uh, um, and there's small business skills that sort of thing so it was just a very different way of thinking about things and he came over and he connected straight away with the locals and had such a huge impact it might just be him and his personality like he seemed to intuitively know how to relate to people and they really really clicked with him and the way he's respected in that village now. And it's just amazing for me to see someone I would never have expected to have such a huge impact. And he's now, he's the vice chairperson of our charity. He's done all kinds of things over there now. He's helped with the water and sanitation projects. Um, We actually had him helping with um, packing the mother and baby packs and distributing them on the last trip, doing the Days for Girls hygiene kits. Um, We go and do those. And then he was training in CPR because he's qualified in that as well. So, yeah, he's a pretty qualified hairdresser. He could do anything. So I'm pretty lucky to have had friends like that and meet people like that who will take up the cause with a passion and be interested in the history as well and why we were there in 99 and why we should have been there in 1975. Have you got somewhere in mind where you, down the track you want to see where this charity can get to, like a benchmark? or? Um, I think we're progressing now to the stage where, because um, it's happened so quickly and it wasn't part of the plan, it wasn't part of my plan for my career or anything, and um, I'm not trained in anything like this. It's just kind of evolving. We're at the point where we really need to establish a board of directors and trustees and make it more formal, especially if we're going to be starting to apply for big grants. Um, That needs to happen now and it needs to be an entity that can manage itself without... I don't want to get rid of the actual small community contact we have. Like We do still have lots of fundraising events that involve our local community and people say to me, this is a lot of work and you're only raising $6,000 at a time where you can go and do a talk and get a $10,000 check or put a grant application in for $40,000. And this, these small level things are very time consuming, but they're important because they keep the two communities linked together. And the people here in Sydney get a lot out of it too. The direct communication, like we've had knitting groups We actually talk on Facebook chat with the craft group in Soibada at the same time. So the ladies there will be getting together talking to us on Facebook while we're doing something to raise money for them here. And that's pretty special to have that sort of relationship. So I don't want to lose any of that. But um, I think we're getting to the stage where I've got to work out a strategy to raise more money and also some sort of handover plan because um, I'm getting old now and I won't always be able to go and um, cope with the roads and all the rest of it. So we're lucky that we've got a lot of young people involved. Um, UNSW students are involved and the most interesting thing is that some of the children who are at primary school when this started and now at university and they've been over there twice or more. So it's great to see those kids that initially started this project had grown up and are still helping and that's pretty special. To start something like this, it would have been a tough thing to develop. And did your experiences at ADFA help prepare you and prepare yourself for this sort of situation and to deal with the women that 
were facing troubled times in Timor? I think um, the experiences at ADVA have helped me deal with women going through trauma throughout my career, both in the military and other girls who've experienced difficult times, and the women in Timor, and even now working in the women's, like helping in the women's groups. But as far as setting up a charity, I don't know. I, nothing from ADVA has helped me with that particularly. Um, I think some of my time in the Navy as a divisional officer and managing people may have helped me coordinate groups of people into doing things. Leadership skills and that type of stuff probably has just come naturally after that time. But I think it's just being in a group of people who all get things done. That's probably a military thing in a way. And now um, I tend to involve myself with civilians who are a bit like that as well. But, yeah, I've had quite a few military people get involved in the Soibata project too now. I've had a few come back with me. And I'm talking to a lot of Interfet veterans who are keen to go back to Timor and want to do something to make a difference to help them as well adjust with their memories and um, come to terms with some of the things that they saw and the trauma they went through. Aside from doing all the charity and everything, you're also a community figurehead for veterans in your local area, Sydney's northern beaches. Keep yourself busy. Yeah, <laughs> that wasn't intentional either, really. Just another one of those things that happened. I think we have a lot of young veterans up here that people have no idea about. They just blended into the community and a lot of the ones from Afghanistan and Iraq are really struggling. I can't really relate to that because Timor wasn't an experience at all like what they've been through in the Middle East. But I do understand what it's like to have to try and fit into a civilian world after the military and that's pretty tough. The RSL is doing a good job of trying to change to accommodate contemporary veterans into our organisation now. But there was a long time when they wouldn't feel accepted and they were really lacking something. So we've got lots of other different veterans organisations offering assistance and trying to tap into that is often difficult. So somehow I've ended up involved with veterans and veterans' mental health. I ended up being the um, vice president of our RSL sub-branch and that was really, I didn't think that would happen. It was kind of just an accident. But it was really good as far as getting women involved. They hadn't had women involved really at that level of our RSL here locally. But also not that I'm a younger veteran anymore, but I'm still probably a little bit younger than the majority of our sub-branch members. And that hopefully will encourage younger veterans who really need our support to join and um, benefit from some of the mentorship that can be provided by the, the more experienced members. Looking over your career from having your father in the Navy and your grandfather as well to now doing what you do today, would you ever see yourself in the position you are today back then? No, no. I actually, I never thought I'd get out of the Navy. I never imagined being a civilian and doing the sort of things I'm doing in the community now. I thought I'd stay in forever. I didn't imagine having the experience like, like Timor in 99 or anything like that because in the 80s there was nothing happening really. When I thought about joining up, there were, there were no conflicts. We weren't deploying anywhere. I didn't really imagine getting to this point or having to deal with the issues that veterans face now. Well, Tamara, you've served your country. You are helping a lot of people and serving those in need in various different avenues. Thank you for your service and for speaking with us today. Thank you. But I still... I do feel there are so many more people that do heaps more. I mean, people that make such a huge difference. Some of these guys that are, and girls that have been coming back from the Middle East now, they really need our help and support. And um, what I've done and been through is nothing in comparison to what they're experiencing and what their families are going through when they return. So thank you for talking to me, but I do think there's a lot more interesting people out there. 
to get in touch with us or Tamara, you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. You can also visit our website, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Our Twitter handle is at LOTLpod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs> <laughs>